Today's show is brought to you by KiwiCo. Parents, KiwiCo projects are designed to spark creativity, tinkering, and learning in kids of all ages. They make learning about STEAM fun. They're on a mission to empower kids not just to make a project, but to make a difference. KiwiCo is offering Parenting Great Kids podcast listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids of all ages, visit KiwiCo.com slash Meg. For 30 plus years, I've seen every type of child grow up. Instead of giving me what I wanted, she gave me what I needed, which was truth. Don't let emotions win. Let truth win. Do your very best, and you should have a lot of fun while you do it. And the better you get at something, the more fun you're going to have at something. You moms and dads are wired with everything you need to be a parent to a great kid. Welcome to Parenting Great Kids. This is episode number 81, and I'm your host, Dr. Meg Meeker. Today, we'll be talking about diagnosing and treating depression and anxiety in kids. We're also going to be asking the question, are kids being overmedicated? My guest is Erica Komazar. She is a clinical social worker, psychoanalyst, and is practicing in New York City. She is the author of Being There, Why Prioritizing Mother in the First Three Years Matters. She's an outspoken advocate for children, teaching parents the importance of forming healthy attachments with children and raising them to be emotionally healthy. As always, I'll share my points to ponder for you to start using right away. And remember, parents, don't just download the episodes. Click the subscribe button. When you do that, you are joining my parenting revolution and every new episode will automatically show up in your subscribe list. I promise you won't regret it. I'd love for you to write us a review on iTunes and let me know what you think about the podcast. Also, not only are we on iTunes, but the Parenting Great Kids podcast is available in the Google Play Store and on Stitcher. So no matter where you get your podcast, subscribe today. Friends, I am excited to announce my new course, Discipline with Courage and Kindness. It's available at megmeekermd.com. Friends, I wrote this course because I know as a parent, sometimes home is chaotic and kids just don't behave the way we want them to. The truth of the matter is, every child needs discipline. And by discipline, I don't mean being wrapped over the head with a big ruler. Discipline is teaching kids how to have self-control, set boundaries, and live a healthy life. So parents, thanks for listening. This is episode number 81. Stay with us. I want you now to listen in on a conversation I had with Erica Komazar. I know you're going to enjoy it. Well, Erica, thank you so much for joining me again to uh, talk about kids and medication and depression and all sorts of things. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me, Meg. Now, Erica, you've been a therapist uh, for many years, and you, like I have seen a lot of changes um, that kids are encountering and parents are encountering. But for you specifically, what are the the biggest changes you've seen in kids and the issues they confront over the past 10 years? 
Well, I've seen an increase in mental disorders in children. Um, and that's really why I wrote the most recent book that I've written, Being There, because mm-hmm. I, I was seeing that one in five children that I was treating um, were suffering from these kinds of mental disorders, which I can describe to you. Um, things mm-hmm. like depression, anxiety, ADHD-like symptoms and behavioral issues, um, signs of early, early signs of aggression. Mm-hmm. And it was really concerning that so many children were being not only diagnosed at such a young age, um, but were also being medicated at a very young age. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we are really um, over-diagnosing and over-medicating children. Mm -hmm. Boy, I agree with you. You know, I loved your your book, Being There. I think that you probably got a lot of flack from it from mothers because they're saying, wait a minute, I should be able to work 40, 60 hours a week and have great kids. And your message was, well, you know, your kids really, kids really need parents. And mm-hmm. um, so are, are you, do you think there's a link between um, parents not spending enough time with their kids and some of these issues that you're seeing? You know, it's a combination of time, which is, you know, time is obviously a commodity that is limited and we only Mm -hmm. have a certain amount of time. So it's our physical presence and the time we spend with our children, but it's also whether we are with them emotionally when Mm -hmm. we're with them physically. So it's a combination of being there physically, but also being there emotionally. And yes, I was seeing a connection between um, deprioritizing children and and also adolescents. I mean, I think there's a misunderstanding of older children and adolescents and how much time and emotional attention they need from us. Um, mm. And and also it's gotten confused uh, with this idea of, you know, self-sufficiency and snowplow parenting and helicopter parenting and what does it mean to be present? So there's a lot of confusion out there about what contributes to these mental disorders. Boy, uh, yeah, I agree with you because I think that sometimes when a, a mother in particular would read your book like being there they think well no you have to be a full-time stay-at-home mom which you need to spend more time with your kids but the truth of the matter there's a lot of full-time stay-at-home moms who aren't physically present with their kids because you know they're distracted they may have depression and so on and so forth so I love the idea that you talk about being emotionally present for their kids and that's going to get harder in the years to come because there is so many distractions for kids particularly screens and parents can be in the same room as their child but really they might as well be across the country because they're both staring at it's screened. So I think your work is going to get busier and harder as time goes on. Erica, what are the three most common reasons that that clients come in to see you? And in particular, I'm talking about parents who bring their kids in for, you know, a certain malady. What are the three most common issues that kids are having that prompt their parents to bring them to you? Yeah, so I'm going to group them if I can, which sure. is um, I group anxiety with ADHD-like symptoms because ADHD-like symptoms are a product of anxiety. So I would say number one is anxiety. Um, 
number two would be behavioral issues uh, like signs of aggression. For instance, if your child is fighting or biting another child at school. Um, and thirdly would be depression and signs of depression. And depression, we see depression and even suicidal thoughts in very young children today. You know, we used to think of depression as something that older children and adolescents get. Um, and, you know, the idea of a young child thinking about killing themselves was mm. something we never thought about, but yes, even that. How young of kids are you seeing with anxiety, ADHD, and thoughts of suicide? Yeah, so the majority of my work is what's called parent guidance. So I talk to parents about their children, um, and I talk to them about their children before, hopefully before the issues become too serious. And many times, if I can work with parents, the children actually don't need to be seen mm -hmm. in play therapy. Um, but if they do need to be seen because it, the, the issue has gone on uh, a certain amount of time, then those children will be seen by a colleague who does play therapy, and I continue to see the parents for parent guidance. And the idea is that if you treat a child in isolation, isolation uh, without treating their parents, you're basically putting that child back into the same environment. So the environment, which is the relationship with the parents, matters a lot in terms of children getting better. Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly what I see too, because you, you really, the child doesn't live in isolation. And there are a lot of family dynamics that, that can perpetuate issues in kids. Do you think 20, 30 years ago, kids would come into your office, a six, seven, eight-year-old child would come into your office with suicidal ideation? They, I mean, there have always been children that have been depressed at a young age, but there's certainly more of it. And I attribute that to the fact that we really, you know, uh, have deprioritized nurturing and, and being with our children and prioritized other things. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we live in a very... Um, a free society, uh, an individualistic society, a self-determined society, all good things, right? You know, things that mean, you know, we pursue what is good for us. Um, but, you know, the idea that raising children requires a great deal of sacrifice. I think you said earlier, you know, children really need us in a very intense way for them to be emotionally healthy. Um, yeah. They're not born emotionally healthy or with the ability to regulate their emotions or uh, become resilient to stress in the future, or they're not born being emotionally secure. They're born with the capacity for emotional security, but uh, it, it really requires that interaction with their parents. So, you know, to a certain extent, we're really, um, we're, we're prioritizing the wrong things, whether it's our work or ourselves or um, the outside world and material um, things instead of really what is most critical, uh, which is our children. You know, I think that many times parents have been trained to think that what they should do, that, you know, the primary purpose of their life is to find their passion, pursue their passion, and stick with that passion. And the idea of teaching parents that sacrifice is a huge part of parenting. You know, we've let a lot of, uh, we've let a lot of young parents down because we really have taught them to focus solely on themselves and, you know, uh, self-advancement. And that has given, it's a huge disservice to them and is causing their, their kids a tremendous amount of pain. When you're looking or you're, you're assessing a child um, for, say, depression and anxiety, what 
signs are you looking for in kids and adolescents? Well, in in the case of anxiety, um, the first thing in both children, adolescents, and adults that I look for um, are things like sleep issues. I mean, people don't really connect the idea of how a child sleeps or how an adolescent or adult sleeps. Do they, can they put themselves to sleep eventually? Can they, do they sleep well? Um, are they having sleep issues? Another thing is social isolation. If a child has difficulty interacting with other children, either at school or after school, um, if they're isolating themselves at home, um, I look for that. I look for difficulty focusing. That's uh, another thing that's quite common today um, with these all of these attentional issues. If you think about the fight or flight response, which is a response to the brain on stress, so, mm-hmm. you know, the old evolutionary response of what do human beings do in the face of danger and threat? Mm-hmm. Um, they either flee or they fight. So what we're seeing is an increase in these symptoms of anxiety, um, this kind of hypervigilance in response mm-hmm. to feeling there's a perceived threat. And those could be focus issues, attentional issues, not being able to sit still. Um, and then we also see the fight piece of it, which is um, early signs of aggression that's not controllable for those children. Mm -hmm. So these are some of the symptoms that I really see. And, you know, with more depressed children, you see things like lethargy or um, uh, harsh self-criticism. You'll often hear children say, you know, I hate myself or, you know, I'm a terrible person or I'm not good at anything or, um, and often children, just like adults who are depressed, have difficulty deriving pleasure from life. Um, mm-hmm. So these are some of the things that I look for. So when you hear a child say that, you know, I don't like myself, I'm not very good, you're not talking about, you know, just, oh, well, my child has low self-esteem, which I think, you know, parents, you know, might say, but there could be something deeper than that. I also hear a lot of parents say, for instance, <clears throat> parents who are, are divorced or getting a divorce and will say, you know, my kids are resilient and they'll be fine. And sometimes they say, well, you know, maybe they won't be fine. You know, maybe you, you really need to be on the lookout for some issues that your kids could have. And sometimes I think we I think we sort of brush issues with children aside Mm -hmm. because we don't necessarily want to see them. We think, you know, well, my my child's a little bit self-deprecating, but he'll get out of it. But from what I'm hearing you say is not necessarily there could be some bigger issues going on here. Well, I mean, all children can have a bad week. Right. They can all have a bad day, just like adults, you know. We mm-hmm. can have a bad day or a bad week. What we look for is persistent symptoms, symptoms that last at least two weeks, mm-hmm. um, that don't seem to be um, fleeting symptoms. Um, you know, if you hear your child say, you know, I'm not good at soccer because they didn't get their the position they wanted on the soccer team, that wouldn't necessarily be a sign of depression. But if you see a persistent um, kind of harsh self-criticism of themselves, um, and what we call low self-esteem is something that parents should, uh, you know, address 
you know, early on and the earlier the better, because if those symptoms of, er, you know, early signs of low self-esteem aren't addressed, they can turn into things like anxiety and depression. So, you know, you don't want to ignore when your child is saying, um, I don't like myself. Um, but on the other hand, it, it isn't necessarily a sign of clinical depression if it's if it's a passing thing. You want to look for right. the persistence of those symptoms. That's a great point. And, you know, I've always been a little bit confused about diagnosing ADHD, depression, and anxiety because a lot of times kids will come into me, say a 10 or 11-year-old, and mom will say, you know, my child can't concentrate at school, the teacher's after me, I think he needs medication. And some, and I say, well, wait a minute, you know, we don't know that this is really a tension issue. So, can depression and anxiety mask itself or other issues mask itself as ADHD? Yeah, exactly. Um, in fact, ADHD, although an organic condition, what we understand now is that um, through the, the science of epigenetics, we understand that the environment impacts whether children develop these disorders. And the environment would be parents, relationships, school, um, any kind of stress that child, psychosocial stress that child may be under. Um, and so that psychosocial stress contributes to stress in the brain. And there's the part of the brain called the limbic system, which is the stress regulating part of the brain. When it's overtaxed, too early, it develops these kinds of symptoms. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we think of this ADHD thing as a thing in and of itself rather right. than a product of the brain on stress. And I think that's also a part of what is wrong with society right now. We really just want to silence pain. We use these medications, these psychopharmacological medications as adults too, just to quiet the pain without really trying to understand the underlying issues underneath the pain, meaning the psychosocial stressors that are contributing to the pain. And when we drug our children before really understanding their pain, we're really just, you know, silencing their pain. Right. We're not really right. helping them to become resilient or emotionally mature. Right. We're just shutting them down. We are. We are. We're, we're really shutting our, our kids down and sort of saying, well, just go away. I, I love what you just said about you know, the environment can create ADHD. One of the things that I've seen over the past 25 years is that kids are living, as you said, with this fight or flight uh, instinct, always on the ready. And the stimulation, the auditory and visual stimulation that they receive every day would make anybody crazy, I think, mm -hmm. um, because, it, you know, they're, they're multitasking, they're doing these things. And I think that their brains can only sort of handle so much. And then you add stress of relationships, and maybe mom and dad aren't available. It's kind of like a perfect storm for a child to just be jumpy, and they can't, you know, they can't concentrate. Because we really, it seems, have seen an explosion of it. I, I would tell you, when I did yeah. my residency in the late 80s, the only people who treated ADHD were psychiatrists. Yeah. And we didn't have any meds. And now it, it's just, 
it's so common. And, you know, primary care doctors like me and all of my partners are left dealing with, because a lot of the psychiatrists are dealing with, you know, the hardcore schizophrenia and really bad depression. And, you know, it's really disturbed me the rise that I've seen. So I love that you say it isn't just when well, my child was born with ADHD, it's part of who they are. So it's kind of like uh, diabetes. So let's throw some medication at it. Yeah, no. Because I see kids' personalities change uh, a lot of times when they're on medication. So as far as treating um, children, let's talk about first depression, anxiety in general. And I know you don't have time to go into a lot. What is your approach to treatment with anxiety and depression first? Well, I mean, what the research shows is that most children in America don't even have a proper evaluation before they're treated, Mm -hmm. Um, meaning they go to the parents will go primarily first to their pediatricians as their uh, first point of contact about these issues. And pediatricians are prescribing these medications without even sending them on to mental health care um, specialists who specialize in children and adolescents. And in some cases, you know, people live in parts of the country where mental health care specialists are not that available. You know, uh, people who specialize in children and, and adolescents and who are not psychiatrists, but who right. are talk therapists first. So the American Academy of Pediatrics always has been recommending psychotherapy, talk psychotherapy as the first line of defense and medication as the last line of defense. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet medication has become the first line of defense. Right. Um, so again, it, it puts us in this position of um, many children aren't properly evaluated. Mm-hmm. They hear the pediatricians hear these symptoms or they give parents uh, a simple written survey, a short survey that they fill out. <laughs> Boy, are you no, right. for real, for real. And I know, they, a piece I know. of paper, I know. and they say, oh yeah, this symptom, that this. symptom, let's give your child some Ritalin, or let's right. give them some Adderall, or let's give them some Vyvanse. Um, yep. And that's it. And uh, so they're not properly evaluated. They don't go into the psychosocial stressors in that child's life. Um, you know, I write in my current book, Being There, but also in the book I'm working on now, a lot of my case studies are, in fact, about how, you know, parents weren't even asked about what's going on at home. Or, you yeah. know, is there marital stress? Is a father or a mother out of work? Is there financial stress? Um, is there sibling rivalry? Is, you know, is there a learning issue possibly that's causing, um, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of what we are seeing in terms of anxiety is that we live in a much more stressful society for children. The expectations are greater. Um, it used to be that children in kindergarten were only expected to play. Right. Um, and now there's so much that is expected of them in terms of being able to control their bodies, being able to read by the time they're in first grade. Um, You know, there's a real emphasis on cognitive development over social emotional development. All these things mean that children can't be children. And that kind of stress, um, you know, particularly if a child is having a learning issue that is undiagnosed and untreated. So all of these things are what I would call psychosocial stressors. What's mm-hmm. going on at home? What's going on at school? Does the child have a learning issue? Possibly. Um, and those questions are can only be asked in a proper evaluation 
person to person, not on a piece of paper, and only with someone who really knows the right questions to ask. Um, So first, a good evaluation. Second, first line of defense should always be play therapy and parent guidance. Uh, And if that alone doesn't work, then you would talk about maybe medication, but certainly medication is the last resort in all Mm -hmm. cases. You know, you are so right. And, you know, as a pediatrician, I I see this all the time. And, um, you know, one of the issues, I don't want to, you know, bash pediatricians or primary care people, but, you know, a couple of things, you know, we're not trained in therapy. And we can recognize depression, recognize anxiety, recognize ADHD. But as far as really honing in and saying, this is exactly what you have, which you need to know before you start treating it, because you treat depression, anxiety, and ADHD and other things. You know, they're nuances. They're different in, in treating those. But for parents to realize, going to your pediatrician is your starting place. And, you, and they yeah. can start to say, okay, well, here's what I need, but... One of the things I really drill parents on is make sure somebody who knows what they're doing gives your child the right uh, diagnosis. And that often means going and taking a lot of time with maybe an educational specialist, maybe a psychologist, and having them really go through and dig to help you um, get a good diagnosis. The other issue that primary care uh, doctors have, and again, I'm not bashing them, is a time constraint. You know, we're under insurance company guidelines, and even if we did know how to properly assess kids, the idea of being able to spend an hour with a patient is almost unheard of. So that's why, you know, you have to have many people uh, on your child's team who are doing the work for your child. It just can't be, you know, your one doctor. And and finally, with ADHD, you know, so many kids come into our offices, and quite honestly, medication's a quote-unquote quick fix. Yeah. And, and, and we want to fix people. But you're right, medication, you know, we've got to have some behavior changes and, you know, talk to the parents about what's going on in this child's life. What does this typical day look like? And if you ask a parent, you know, what happens from the child gets up in the morning till they go to bed at night on your average 10 or 11 year old kid, I couldn't keep up with the schedule. And they're never home. They're never with the parents. So, you know, that's kind of disconcerting. Parents, I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Erica Komazar. We need to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Erica Komazar. When it comes to shopping for clothes, most of us are amateurs. So why not let the professionals handle it? With Stitch Fix, a stylist will do all the work for you. Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service that delivers your favorite clothing, shoes, and accessories directly to you. After completing your style profile, your expert personal stylist will send you a hand-picked box of items based on your preferences. And if you're a parent, try out their new kids' boxes. They offer sizes 2T to 14 with 8 to 12 items per box. Your kid will love the surprise of getting their very own Stitch Fix box. And with no subscription required, you can pick between automatic shipments or on-demand. Plus, shipping, exchanges, and returns 
are always free. Get started today at stitchfix.com slash kids slash Meg to try Stitch Fix with no styling fee. And get a 25% off when you keep everything in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash kids slash Meg. Stitchfix.com slash kids slash Meg. Friends, it's no surprise Rothy's has over 1,000 nearly perfect reviews. Rothy's are stylish, sustainable, comfortable, and washable, and really the perfect flats for life on the go. If you've listened to my podcast, you know that I love Rothy's shoes. They're comfortable, they're beautiful, they're stylish, and most of all, the thing that I love about Rothy's is they're made from recycled plastic bottles, and they're washable. You can throw them in the washing machine, and they come out looking brand new. Since Rothy's are seamlessly crafted from recycled water bottles, they're ultra comfortable as soon as you slip them on. That's right. There's zero break-in period in these shoes, and I can attest to that. Plus, they're constantly launching new styles, so you're guaranteed to find a pair or three that you love. Better yet, Rothy's are manufactured in a zero-waste factory, and they ship directly in the shoebox, no unnecessary packaging. Rothy's always come with free shipping and free returns and exchanges, so there's no risk, no worries, and no reason not to try them. You'll quickly discover why BuzzFeed called them their forever shoes. Check out all the amazing styles available right now at rothys.com slash Meg. Go to R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash Meg to get your new favorite flats. Comfort, style, and sustainability. These are the shoes you've been waiting for. Head to rothys.com slash Meg. Let's talk about medication. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you were talking about, we know that it, kids with, I don't know, I, I can't say numbers or what percentage of kids with ADHD are, are on medication, but I would imagine the percentage pretty high. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as far as depression, anxiety, um, you know, I feel strongly that, that kids with depression, anxiety should not be on medication alone. I mean, it's not something you just write a prescription for, particularly as a primary care doctor. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts about medications for uh, these these three different um, issues? Well, I mean, first, let me just say of the parents that come to see me, I would say uh, 20 to 30 percent of those children that the parents are coming in to talk about are on medication. Um, So that's a lot. That's between one and two and five children who present with these symptoms are medicated pretty quickly. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the parents that get to people like me um, who give them alternatives are, are more of a rarity um, today. So I would say like one in five children are are medicated. Um, Yeah. And what what age are you talking about? What age kids? Well, unfortunately, it's starting younger and younger. So it's starting in preschool. So we're talking Mm. three years old and up. 
for for stimulants. And, you know, what what we're seeing and the most recent research on the stimulants is that some of the side effects that are the most frightening side effects are things like increased anxiety, increased depression, suicidal ideation, and even things like psychosis. We're even Mm. seeing psychosis in children. Mm. Um, So, you know, these medications are not a panacea. And Mm -hmm. some of them do work short term, but they can have really um, long term, as you say, they can also change children's personalities, but they can also have long term effects on children. I mean, I'm talking 30 years ago, Mm -hmm. I worked on a a research uh, project at the New York Psychiatric Institute, where they were trying to see if children on Ritalin had increased depression and suicidal ideation. So we've known about this for, for 30 years. Um, and why we don't educate parents that those medications are not like taking vitamin pills. They are really right. serious, uh, mind-altering, chemical-altering medications that can have long-term impacts on children. Now, I'm, I'm going to play the devil's advocate a little bit here, but this is, this is one of the, the issues that I have. I have a 12, 13, 14-year-old child who's showing signs of anxiety, maybe some depression, and you know, I recommend that the child go to counseling. We've got some great therapists in our area and kids won't go. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you do then? <laughs> you know, that's, it's a real problem for you. Or, or even a, a young teenager say, I, I'm not going to go. I, I don't want to go. So what do you do? So one thing that I tell parents is if your child won't go for individual therapy, um, you can try a couple of manipulative ways to get them to go into therapy. One is to get them into a group, um, a group environment, either a socialization group or a group at their school. Um, you know, there are lots of wonderful groups in um, schools for, for children uh, of parents who are going through divorces and families that are going through divorces. Um, But there are also, you know, there are social socialization groups. So you can try to get your child into a kind of group environment that might be easier for them. Um, Mm -hmm. And then if not, you do family therapy um, Mm -hmm. as an entree into individual therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it, it sometimes is hard with teenagers, but there are always ways and you have to find the ways, you know, whether it's finding a group at school or outside of school that they can go to. Um, And also, you know, children, just like adults, um, they hit rock bottom. And to a certain extent, sometimes it's not until they're open to getting help, Mm -hmm. uh, older children and adolescents, um, that you can get them help, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, what you asked me, what is one of the signs that children need help is when their schoolwork starts to um, starts to suffer from some of these symptoms, or their peers are rejecting them, or, Mm -hmm. you know, teachers and administrators at school are starting to be concerned. Um, So, so, you know, children are um, also aware of their environment and, and sometimes they have to get to a point where they're concerned before they'll Mm -hmm. seek treatment. Yeah. One of the things I have done and, and, and it feels manipulative and it almost feels like I'm lying with the kids is I tell parents to do something like this, to say to, to the child, you know, I really want to learn how to be a better parent. We're not getting along very well. So will you go with me to talk to somebody so that I can get tips and have your feedback on how to be a better parent? So it puts, it puts all the emphasis on the parent, 
but they're really going for their child. Is that okay to do or, or absolutely. no? No, absolutely okay. it is. In fact, you know, one of the things um, that parents can do when their children won't go to therapy is go to therapy themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, Parents suffer when their children suffer. And, you know, if their child seems not to be doing well, then parents are often very stressed and need support. So parent guidance isn't just to learn to be a better parent and to help your child. It's also for you. Um, It's also to relieve some of your stress. So I would say if your child is, is struggling and is not wanting to go for help, then you go for help as a parent. Um, You get the support and the parent guidance will also give you a handle on how you can talk to your child and get them to go for help. Now, I know we weren't going to talk about it, so I just want to ask you one quick question if that's possible. Mm -hmm. I have a number of parents who come in and say, my child has oppositional defiant um, disorder, ODD, Mm -hmm. and I, I don't know there's much I can do about it and will ask for medication or something. You know, these are kids that are just fighting constantly and um, very argumentative with their parents. They're acting out terribly. What is behind this? What What are behind the kids who just hate everybody and everything? ADHD is real. Anxiety is real. Depression is real. Um, oppositional defiant disorder is real, meaning these are real symptoms. The question is, right. what are they symptoms of? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, it's... In a way, it's, I don't want to use the word easier because it, it diminishes the importance of this, but it is in a way easier to blame our children for having a disorder or a disease or an illness because it lets us off the hook as parents. Right. And we don't have to think about our role, our behavior, uh, maybe our own anxiety and our own depression and whether we've been as present as possible in those years that that child was developing this emotional security that would carry them through life and create a foundation. So, right. I mean, I think the idea is these are all real disorders. It's just, where do we fall in, mm-hmm. in, in those disorders? How, how are we involved in those symptoms? And that's the, that's the important question. Um, a child with oppositional defiant disorder, um, is it's obviously a very difficult thing, but remember what I said about um, the fight or flight. Mm-hmm. Um, intense aggression in children is often a response to stress and fear. Um, it, it is a human response when we're frightened to become aggressive to protect ourselves. And that's what children do automatically. Um, that's what their brains do automatically. Um, and, you know, one thing that we see now and we can see because of all the technology that we have is we can see what children's brains do on stress, meaning the part of the brain that regulates stress in the limbic system is called the amygdala, this tiny little almond-shaped part of the brain, which is supposed to remain offline and very quiet um, for the first year of a child's life. We're seeing this part of that brain activated much too early. Um, And you know, why? Because we leave children very early, often because we have to go back to work, but many uh, children are left in daycare with strangers or, um, you know, we're, we're not attending to those first early years with, with children. And that part of the brain, that, that stress regulating part is activating too early, is, is enlarging very early. And as a result, um, 
kind of burns out, shrivels mm-hmm. up and burns out. Um, and as a result of that burning out, we see these children who cannot regulate stress in their brain. And many of those children have aggression and impulsive aggression that they cannot control. Mm-hmm. So we really have to look at the causes of things. Where Where is the fear? Where is the stress on the brain? And where is it coming from? And really mm-hmm. address it on that level rather than just label children and medicate them. Yeah. What you're really saying is it's it's sort of a, a, a way for parents to say, that's what my child has so they can separate th- themselves from it. You yeah. know, my child has depression. My child has ODD. My child has ADHD. So now a uh, psychologist or physician fix them. And it, it just doesn't work that way. So I, I love what you say. We only have a few minutes left. And I would like for you, Erica, to talk to the parent out there who's thinking, you know, um, life at home is stressful. I've got an eight-year-old. I've got a 12-year-old. And I'm concerned something is up. They're not acting quite right. What are um, signs that parents should look for? You touched on this earlier to see if their child might have depression or anxiety or ADHD? You know, again, for me, the most concerning things uh, in young children are social isolation. When I mm-hmm. see a child is not doing well socially, it's um, more of a sign for me even than them not doing well in school. Um And believe it or not, not doing well in school, if it is a continuous and persistent thing, can also be a sign of something. Um, It's it's a chicken and egg. So not doing well in school uh, may mean that they have a learning issue that's not diagnosed. It may mean that they're depressed or distracted at school. Um, But the problem is if it's left too long unattended, that then can become anxiety and depression. So it's this kind of a circular thing. Um, So social isolation how they're doing at school. Um, If there's a lot of aggression, it seems like there's more aggression. Uh, There's always some aggression. Children are aggressive, meaning there's always sibling rivalry. But if it seems like the aggression and the impulsivity is something that the child really is getting in the way of that child's life. Um, Difficulty focusing or sitting still. Um, As I said, sleep issues or eating issues. um, These are some of the things you want to look for. Wonderful. And are there things that parents can do preemptively to, to, to listening to us and go, I, I really don't want my child to have any of those. They're not exhibiting that now. You know, what are a few things that I can do to help sort of prevent anxiety and depression in my kids? Are there specific things or kids just, that's just the way life is going to be because their environment is so stressful? Well, again, the environment is stressful, but what helps children to deal with the environment is uh, are, are a few things. One is that they can regulate their emotions, and two is that they are resilient to stress. And those two things are built like building the foundation of a house in the early years. So I would say if you have young children uh, under the age of, and I'm going to even stretch it and say under the age of five, mm-hmm. uh, more is more. The more emotionally and physically available available you are to them. I I say parents are like the digestive system for children's emotions. Mm. Um, Whatever emotions they have, parents interpret those emotions. They help soothe those emotions. They basically help to regulate 
children's emotions from the outside in. And it's only after the first few years that a child can internalize the ability to regulate their own emotions. So one of the the most important preventative things um, is to be as present as possible, both physically and emotionally for your children. Um, And that helps with that emotional regulation from moment to moment. The other thing is that parents are buffers for all this stress in the early years. So if you have enough buffering of stress in the early years, then you internalize the ability to um, cope with stress, to be resilient in the future. So more is more. The more emotionally and physically available you can be um, in terms of helping to regulate your child's emotions and buffer them from stress in those early years, that is truly preventative for mental health issues later on. So you're really talking about being in the house, being in the room, being at a table, looking at your child, talking to your child. And sort of looking at them, reading there, connecting with them, you have to physically be there. But also, when you're there emotionally, you know, you're in the same room, you're paying attention, they're paying attention, you know, you're not just watching a television program, or, you know, both working on your laptops, you're really talking about really being there with a child and interacting with the child in a calm sort of way, um, is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, focusing on feelings, listening to children. And I think the most critical thing parents can do for their children is to be interested in them. You know, children have become much less interesting to us as adults, which is, I think, why we are distracted with other things, Um, work, technology. Somehow along the way, we've lost our interest in our own children. You know, I guess you could say it's, it's normal to maybe be less interested in somebody else's child. Okay, that might be, you know, instinctually possible. But to not be interested in your own child, to not find them fascinating mm-hmm. <laughs> um, right. is instinctually off. And so really the, the best thing you can do is to really show interest in your child, yeah. to understand yeah. um, who they are. So, you know, in, in my field, we say um, most parents love their children. And for mm-hmm. the most part, people don't come into therapy saying my parents didn't love me. They come into therapy saying my parents love me, but they didn't understand me. Right, right. And that's, I would say that's at the root of most mental illness. And so if we think of it in that way, really tuning into your child, trying to understand who they are, focusing on their feelings, reflecting their feelings. Mm -hmm. Um, If you see they're sad, don't avoid the sadness or dismiss it. Really reflect it and, and address it and say, I see you're sad. And that is a gift you give your children that builds emotional security and resilience to stress for life. I love it. And I think one of the things I've often told parents of teenagers in particular, I'd never thought about it for younger kids, is ask their opinion, ask what they think about a certain issue and listen to it. What it communicates to the child is, you know, my thoughts and feelings are important to you. Talk about boosting the self-esteem. You know, when a parent looks at you and says, you know, I've been thinking about this. What do you think? Um, It just makes the the child feel... um, so much better about themselves. Erica, I am so grateful that you came and let me interview you. I I could honestly, I could talk to you for a couple more hours. Your book being there is phenomenal. And I really think every, every parent, whether you're a mom or dad needs to read your book because there aren't other books out there saying what you're saying. And I'm, it's like a breath of fresh air and it works. And so I'm, I'm so grateful that you wrote that book. If people wanted to connect with you, where should they go to find you? 
They can go to my website, which is www.comisar.com, and they can also follow me on Twitter, Erica Comisar CSW on Twitter. Awesome. Erica, thank you, and uh, we'll, thank we'll, you, have, we'll, we'll have you back when your new book comes out. I can't wait thank to you. read it on adolescence. And I love talking to you, too. <laughs> Thanks. Now on my points to ponder. One, make sure your trouble make sh- one, make sure your child's troubles get an accurate diagnosis. If you feel that your child may be struggling with anxiety or depression or ADHD, speak with your doctor about it and ask for a thorough assessment by a psychologist education specialist or psychiatrist. You know, many of these issues have overlapping symptoms and treatment won't be successful if you're treating the wrong thing. And this is true, especially if you're using medication. For instance, some kids can be made worse if you're treating depression, but the child really has ADHD or vice versa. Second, don't respond in fear. You know, many times parents are afraid to see problems in their kids. They feel guilty that maybe they've caused or exacerbated a problem. They may feel that some of the issues carry a stigma and they don't want their child to be labeled. Don't worry about this. Getting an assessment is private. No one needs to know what your child may or may not have. And you are ultimately the one who agrees to treatment. If you're afraid, your child will be afraid and believe that whatever is wrong with him is a bigger problem than it really may be. Three, listen to professionals you trust. Once a determination has been made about what your child does or does not have, listen to a good professional. When it comes to mental illness or even ADHD, many parents believe that the problems are either transient or, quote, in a child's head. Thus, they refuse to get their child help. Don't rob your child of help. On the other hand, think carefully about treatment and make sure that your child isn't being overtreated or wrongly medicated. Talk these concerns through with a doctor you trust and make wise, informed, and balanced decisions. I want to thank my guest, Erica Komisar, for such a great discussion. If you haven't read her book, you need to read it. Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. You can find her at komisar.com. Now let's recap my points to ponder. One, don't respond in fear. Two, make sure your child gets an accurate diagnosis. And three, listen to trusted professionals. So until next time, parents, always remember that great kids are raised, not born. Hey, this is Bobby, producer of Meg Meeker's Parenting Great Kids podcast. Thanks for listening to episode 81, Anxiety and Depression in Kids. And because of your dedication to raising great kids, Dr. Meg's Parenting Revolution has grown to over 3 million downloads. Head on over to Facebook and Twitter and follow at Meg Meeker MD and check out what's new at MegMeeker.com. And while you're there, sign up for the newsletter to stay updated and get information about giveaways. Don't forget to share the podcast with other parents, subscribe so you won't miss anything, and leave us a review so we know how we're doing.